you know, we've been doing kind of these standalone sermons before we go into the Ecclesiastes sermon series. And so today we're going to look at one of these narratives um, that I've really been uh, intrigued by. And I've been reading the Gospels a lot and meditating on the Gospels a lot the past few months. And kind of what strikes me about narratives in Scripture is kind of like um, how the authors are just so creative in how they present the characters and the plot and the setting and different themes that come and go. And it's kind of like watching a movie and kind of picking up what the director's doing, whether it's with the actual characters, whether it's the music or even like color schemes and things like that, that kind of give you these subtle hints uh, pointing towards the theme that they're trying to get across. Maybe not even in just an explicit way, but in these subtle kind of creative ways that you pick up subconsciously. And so today, um, with that, I wanted to look at two stories in Mark. Um, uh, today will be a little bit different. It's not going to be, you know, going through one passage and saying, here's a passage, here's three different points to get from it. Um, I more so want to look at it as, let's look at two different scenes that we see, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. Two different scenes, and allow those scenes to kind of mutually reinforce and contrast with each other, and what do they teach us about who Jesus is. And the specific theme that we'll focus on today is the theme of caring. Does God care about us? Um, let me see if I get the slide thing here. All right. So the, the title for today's message is, Teacher, Don't You Care? And that's going to be a quote from one of our uh, passages, Teacher, Don't You Care? And I don't know how all of you guys are kind of wired your personalities, but uh, I've come to realize over time that for me, I'm kind of like, I would say like sensitive kind of person. Like there have been moments, I think early on in dating Annie, um, you know, where I'd be like texting her and then she doesn't respond for a little bit and I'm like, what's happening? Like, does she hate me or like what's happening? And I'll just get like, you know, these random little thoughts or even, you know, some of you guys are my friends, you know, I've had times in my life uh, where I've noticed I feel like particularly grumpy or down a certain day and then I'll be really sensitive to like, no one's asking me if I'm okay, like, no one cares about me at all, like, this is just, you know, I'll have these random thoughts where I just struggle to believe sometimes, do people that are around me, do they really care about me? And that also kind of translates to my relationship with God. How much more so, right, if I struggle with people caring about me, how much more do I struggle with God, whether he cares about me? And that's what we're going to look at today, whether we can really believe that God cares for us. And so the first passage we're going to look at is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Um, and I'll pray for us before we jump into that passage. Oh God, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, this morning and just opportunity to come before you. God, I ask that you would speak, uh, that your word would transform us as Larry preached last week. Lord, I pray that in this time, uh, it wouldn't be my words that have any impact um, on us as a congregation, but it would be your word, your scripture, these words of life that um, change us, that cuts us deeply to the heart, that encourages us. I pray that that would happen today. So Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts and would you speak and move and uh, affirm for us, God, truly that you do care that even in the great storms of life and the moments when you seem silent and absent and far off, that you do truly care for us. 
Now, this is proven um, most significantly, most clearly in your son, Jesus. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll start with this passage in Mark 4. It's a familiar passage. Mark 4, 35 through 41, it says, uh, this is after some preaching ministries of Jesus, and it says, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boats that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I think this is probably a very familiar passage to many of us who have been in the church for some period of time. And, you know, a lot could be said about this passage. Um, and I think the main point really is that last uh, question that we see the disciples asking. This is kind of probably in the context of what Mark is trying to get across is this last point. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's telling us about Jesus' divine authority that he has. Uh, he's not um, needing to pray to God to ask for uh, the storms to be silenced or to be stopped. He cannot just say it himself, right? And so there's this clear point that Jesus is this divine Lord who has power and authority. I think today, though, our focus is not going to be quite on that point, but it's going to be on this question uh, that the disciples asked as they saw Jesus asleep when they asked, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? If you think about the situation here on the boat, it's, it's really intense. Um, there's this great windstorm that had come, so much so that waves are crashing into the boat, and the boat was already filling. It's starting to sink, and the disciples are fearing probably for their lives. It says uh, this is happening in the evening. We don't know for sure, but it might have been dark, and that's terrifying. Um, a few of us were at the aquarium yesterday and talking about just the ocean, and if you think about the ocean or the sea, like in many ways, I love the water, and I think it's amazing. It's beautiful. There's so many fun things you can do, and so much of God's like amazing creation in the water. Uh, but the water also makes me feel extremely helpless and powerless and vulnerable. Um, there's just this vast kind of mystery to the ocean. There's so much under there that is uh, kind of lurking around. We were talking about Shark Alley and all these different things. Um, but even if the sea is calm, I'm already kind of like somewhat freaked out about if I get dropped off in the middle of like the deep sea. But the sea isn't calm here. Uh, the windstorm has come. There's waves that are crashing. If you've ever been just floating around in the ocean, just, you know, swimming a little bit and you get hit by some waves, it's pretty powerful. I got dragged in the sands, you know, this past summer and I was only like a foot in, you know, so you never know. And the w waves just come and will hit you. In this case, it's this really tense, threatening, scary situation that they're in. And Jesus, in the midst of this scary situation, it says that he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. And 
if you think about this from the disciples' perspective, it's kind of like almost even worse that Jesus is there sleeping. Because it's one thing if the disciples are just on the boat and they're about to die and they're just thinking, you know what? This is it. God's taking us. This is how we're going to go. Okay, we're fishermen. Like, this is, this is a good ending or something like that, right? But Jesus is there and they're thinking Jesus can actually save us. He's been doing all these things already in Mark's gospel. He can save us, but instead of doing anything, even though Jesus is there, he's sleeping. So it makes it almost even worse because they have this potential means of rescue, but Jesus is fast asleep. And so they cry out, teacher, don't you care? How can you sleep? Does this concern you at all that we're about to die? And many of us can probably relate to this kind of scene. There's some kind of storm in our life. It might be relationships that are challenging, work uh, that's challenging. Maybe there's no work. We can't find a job. Maybe money is tight. Um, people that we love are sick, are dying, have passed away. Obviously, the world is kind of going through some things around us. It might feel like the boats of our lives in this world is, is sinking. It's in a desperate kind of situation. And as Christians, the thing is we have God. We're not just like people who don't believe in God. We have God, and yet so often we go to God and we expect that he'll move and we'll, we expect that he'll do something about these storms, about our sinking boats, and we find that God is asleep. And in many ways, that makes it even worse. We ask, God, what are you doing? How can you sleep? Don't you care that we're perishing? Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this book, little book called A Grief Observed. And I wanted to read this uh, little snippet out of it that really spoke to me um, in a past season. And I think it encapsulates some of what the disciples are experiencing, some of what we may also experience in our lives. Uh, he writes this book um, reflecting on his grief after his wife passed away, after just a few years of marriage. And in the midst of talking about the immense grief and sorrow that he felt, uh, he paints this picture for us, not of a sinking boat, of it, but of an empty house. And so in the midst of his grief, he says, Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away, because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. So with the disciples and with C.S. Lewis, we cry out, Teacher, Lord Jesus, God, do you care that we're perishing? Or is this house where you used to dwell, is this house empty and silent? Um, I mentioned earlier, many of you know that I used to be uh, full-time on staff uh, with Stepping Stone. Uh, came in as an undergrad, knowing many of you, like John and Felicia and Jason as V staff, and stayed on for a few years as volunteer staff. And then Alan and I actually came on together um, to be full-time interns, then pastoral staff with Stepping Stone. Um, and I did that until fall 2021, uh, when I chose after a couple months of um, 
processing and talking to Phil and others, I chose to step down and take a break from ministry in that season. Um, and there was a lot going on in that season, but, um, you know, as I was processing, I read this passage in, uh, in this book from C.S. Lewis, and this image really struck me. And it felt like it kind of described the different things that I was feeling. Um, for me, you know, my wife didn't pass away, tragically, as uh, C.S. Lewis experienced. My life was not like the disciples, where there was a sudden great windstorm, where my, the boat of my life was just about to be destroyed and sink to the bottom of the ocean. Um, but it felt like uh, there was more like a slow leak in this boat uh, of faith that I had. Like little things here and there, just punching holes in the hull and water kind of starting to flow in. And it's not enough to totally sink everything, but it's starting to add up over time. And, um, you know, there were multiple extended family members that I had who just passed away suddenly. There were these major conflicts that I had uh, in my family, especially with my mom. Um, ministry uh, didn't quite look like what I expected. Um, I think I had a lot of uh, fire and passion to see certain things, and it felt like all of these different prayer requests that I was bringing to God alongside others in the ministry um, just were going unanswered. And in fact, at points, God would seem to be doing the opposite of what I expected that he should be doing. So all of these things kind of um, accumulated, these slow leaks. And this God who had seemed so close to me before, who had seemed so near and so caring, he seemed to vanish into this empty house that C.S. Lewis describes. There seemed to be silence, and the longer I waited, that silence grew louder. And as this happens, uh, ministry became really uncomfortable for me to do. I felt like I could do it, but it just felt disjointed. It felt like I was having to each week preach and teach discipleship classes and Bible studies and tell people this is what it means um, to follow Jesus. And in my own life, I felt like I was knocking at this empty house, not getting any vitality from Jesus. Uh, and there's more to that story. Obviously, I'm back here serving, at least in a part-time capacity, and I'm happy to share more um, with any of you and grab food or coffee or anything like that. Um, but perhaps some of us today feel like we're in a similar situation. We're asking, God, do you care? You know the things that I'm dealing with in my life on a daily basis, when I go to work, when I go to school, when I talk to my parents, when I'm dealing with my kids. You know these things that I'm dealing with, these unresolved conflicts, these issues. You know what my family is dealing with, my neighbors. You know what the world is dealing with. Don't you care that we're perishing right now? We're sinking because it seems like you're asleep and it seems like the house is empty. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus' immediate answer is to calm the storm. He silences the storm. And that is an amazing, divine, miraculous answer. But I think that as we read through the Gospel of Mark, there are these other clues that tell us the answer to this question, teacher, do you care about us? That tell us, yes, God does care about us in a way that's more emphatic, that's more full than the silencing of the storm that we get in Mark chapter 4. And for that, we're going to look at a scene that's much later on in Mark, and it is in Mark chapter 14. 
And the context in Mark 14 is, is very different. A lot has happened between Mark 4 and 14. And, you know, the parallels between these stories are not going to be 100% uh, connected or accurate necessarily. But I do think that there are some clear connections that suggest for us that the story of Mark 4 is illuminated and filled out, fleshed out by what we see in Mark chapter 14. And so <clears throat> as we read this, I would encourage you all to, to keep in your mind the, the story, the scene that we saw in Mark 4, and consider as we read this next passage, how are these two scenes similar? In what ways are they alike? And in what ways are they different? So the second scene that we'll look at is Mark chapter 14. It's verses 32 through 42. Um, Jesus uh, has just had the Last Supper with his disciples, and we're told in verse 32 that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's a lot going on in this passage, and we're not going to be able to get into all of it. But there's at least one really clear connection between this story and the one that we saw in Mark chapter 4. Does anyone want to take a guess at what that clear connection is? Exactly. Nice. I know I tend to put people asleep with my sermons. So I'm trying to keep the engagement a little bit higher. Um, it's funny. I uh, had dinner with Gabe a while ago, and he's never heard me preach before. Um, but he said, I feel like if I were to hear you preach, I would fall asleep. So I was like, wow, okay. Um, so, you know, trying to be aware of that. And uh, keep the engagement higher, which is a struggle, struggle for me. But yes, exactly. So probably the clearest connection between these two passages is this theme of sleeping, and we get this inversion, kind of this flipping of who's asleep. So in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are awake. They're terrified for their lives, and the irony is that Jesus is asleep. And then in Mark chapter 14, multiple times we're told Jesus is the one who's awake. He's terrified. He's greatly troubled. He's anxious. And yet the disciples, over and over again, they're found to be asleep. Um, oh, wow. That did not translate. Okay. <laughs> Is there any way we could uh, change the font on that, Wilson? 
I can also just read out loud, but that's, that's hilarious. Um, there's several, thank you, Wilson. That's quick. All right. There are all these different connections that we can see between the two scenes, right? So in Mark 4, you have, uh, they're on the boat, and then suddenly this really bad situation occurs. There's the windstorm, the waves are coming in, the boat starts sinking. Mark 14, we have a similar situation. They go to the garden, that sounds nice, except Jesus is greatly troubled and distressed. Um, so it's not like a physical, environmental situation that they're dealing with, but Jesus is somehow feeling greatly distressed and troubled about something. In Mark 4, the disciples are implicitly seeking rescue from the storm. Jesus seeks rescue as he says, remove this cup from me. I already mentioned the disciples are awake and terrified in Mark 4 while Jesus is asleep. In Mark 14, the disciples are the ones who are asleep while Jesus, uh, surprisingly, is terrified. He's troubled. And finally, in Mark 4, Jesus brings momentary salvation when he silences the storm, commands it to stop. And in Mark 14, as we'll see um, today, Jesus brings a fuller salvation. He brings eternal salvation somehow in what he does in the garden. So in Mark 4, the disciples are awake. They're terrified. They ask the sleeping Jesus this question, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And in Mark 14, it is Jesus who is awake, who is greatly troubled, who asks, Simon, are you asleep? But it is precisely Jesus's agony and his distress in the garden. It's his perseverance to stay awake and to pray as the disciples sleep that I think gives us the fuller answer to that question. Teacher, do you care? It's not just the storm that was silenced in Mark 4 that says, yes, God cares about us. He cares about the disciples. But Jesus' actions in the garden in Mark 14, they prove with far more weight and far more substance that Jesus does care for the disciples and that he does care for us. The actions that Jesus takes in Mark 14, they speak far louder than the few words that calm the storm in Mark 4. How? You know, why do I say this? What makes this true? You know, to see this passage in Mark 14 as a proclamation of Jesus' eternal love and care for us, we first need to make some sense of what's happening in the passage. And I think to do that, we need to answer at least these two questions. Um, click back onto the... Thank you, Wilson. Uh, we need to answer at least two of these uh, important questions, which is, why were all of these people praying? Why were the disciples praying? Why was Jesus praying? So why were they praying to begin with in the garden? And then secondly, why was Jesus so troubled? So first, why were they praying? Um, as I often heard this uh, passage being preached or taught on, or even in my own understanding of the passage, I often heard it said that, um, you know, what was the disciples' failure uh, in this passage? Why was it bad that they were falling asleep? Uh, it's because Jesus was in his moment of greatest need, where he needed his closest disciples to be there to support him in this moment when he's facing the worst uh, thing he's ever going to experience. And they're kind of there for like moral support, and they keep falling asleep when they're supposed to like be helping Jesus. And I think there probably is something to that. I don't think that's um, necessarily wrong. But if we look at the passage and ask why were they praying, uh, we see this. 
So in verses 37 and 38, when Jesus first comes and finds Peter sleeping, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch one hour? And then he says, watch and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what Jesus is telling us is that in this uh, situation, the disciples, they need to pray not for moral support necessarily, although that might be helpful for Jesus, but they're praying to overcome temptation. Well, what is this temptation that they need to overcome? If we back up to the passage immediately before this, in Mark 14, 26 through 31, we get a clue. So this is immediately before the Gethsemane scene, after they have supper, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus tells them right before they go to the garden, all of you will fall away. Peter, of course, says, even though they all fall away, never going to happen for me. Jesus said, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Not once, but three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So the temptation here that Jesus is saying, you need to pray to overcome temptation. The temptation is that of falling away. The temptation is that they would deny Jesus for the purpose of avoiding suffering. So, you know, most of us know how the story goes. Peter is talking all this talk. All these other disciples, they're going to fall away. I'll never do it. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never reject you. And the irony is that when Jesus goes to the cross and he is hung on the cross to die, he's surrounded by two people who are also dying. But it's not Peter or James or John next to him. It's strangers. And instead, Peter's on the ground looking up as Jesus is crucified. This Peter who said, I'll die with you before I deny you. Instead, when the little kids are asking, hey, weren't you with Jesus as well? says, I don't know what you're talking about, and denies Jesus. Peter should have been up there besides Jesus, but he fell into temptation. His spirit was willing. He's saying, I would rather die with you than reject you. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak, and he failed. And so in the garden, Jesus is telling the disciples to pray so they might overcome this temptation, but instead they fall asleep, and they ultimately fail to overcome temptation. And if this is true, this suggests that Jesus was also praying for himself that he might overcome his own temptation. What was Jesus's temptation that he had to deal with? In verse 36, Jesus prays and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then he says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus faced his own temptation, as Peter and the other disciples did. And his temptation was to avoid drinking from this mysterious cup that he references just out of nowhere. Remove this cup from me. The thought of this cup troubled Jesus greatly and distressed him. This same Jesus who was asleep in the middle of this great windstorm on the sea, who ministered to countless demon-possessed people who faced numerous death threats. 
people trying to kill him, this Jesus who faced all those things and seemed to take all those things in stride, now suddenly we're told that this same Jesus was greatly distressed, troubled, anxious by this looming reality of a cup. Why was this the case? Why was Jesus so troubled? What was in this cup? We don't have time right now for a full study on what this cup means, but we will briefly look at a few Old Testament texts just to give us an idea of what Jesus is thinking about here. Psalm 75, I'm going to go through these kind of quickly just for the sake of time. Um, But in Psalm 75, uh, we get this prayer that's talking about God's justice coming. So the psalmist says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. And then God says, At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Don't lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. So God is in this position of judgment. He says, for not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. How will God judge? For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So this cup, in a way that might not make immediate sense to us, this cup somehow represents the symbol of God's divine and righteous judgment on the wicked. We see more of this being fleshed out in Habakkuk chapter 2, Um, I had to quote this. I love Habakkuk. I'm always talking to Annie about how Habakkuk is amazing. No one ever talks about it except the Apostle Paul, which, you know, I guess that's nice. Um, So I had to quote Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk chapter 2, he's talking about the Babylonians who are imminently going to destroy the temple and the people of God. And God is talking about the judgment that will come on them. So Habakkuk says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So he's talking about the sin of the Babylonians, forcing people uh, into drunkenness. And then he says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So the cup here is not just a symbol of divine wrath, but it starts to represent this reciprocal kind of judgment, almost like this Uh, not really an eye for an eye necessarily how we think about it, but this kind of divine irony where the same way that these wicked nations have committed certain sins and acted in ways that are contrary to God, God is now bringing them punishment through the same means. So he says, you who made your neighbors drink, now you yourself will drink from the Lord's cup and you will receive shame instead of glory. We see this kind of reciprocal theme of judgment again in Revelation chapter 18. This prophecy comes one day, um, maybe that we will hear, when an angel cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This great and like symbolic enemy of God's people who has persecuted and killed the people of God. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Note, 
drinking of the wine there. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Makes a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. I don't know how you all feel, but these passages can be pretty uncomfortable to read. Um, the language is really intense and shocking and jarring, and I think it's meant to be unsettling as we think about these words of divine judgment uh, that God will one day bring against wicked nations and leaders. But it's shocking to imagine uh, these words, even reading them as somehow applying to us. You know, I think we'd be so unsettled um, if we read this and think about God saying this to us, come out of her people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Her sins are heaped as high as heaven. God has remembered her iniquities and he'll repay her double for her deeds. And I think if we uh, felt this personally, we'd be really shaken, unsettled, uncomfortable, perhaps terrified. But how could these words of intense shocking judgment. How could these words apply to somebody like Jesus? You know, Jesus, who is the very image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. They were created through him and for him, and all creation holds together in him. Jesus is the beloved son of God. He's the prince of peace. He's the holy and righteous one, the blameless and spotless lamb. He's meek and humble and lowly. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, if we think about his holiness and his radiant glory, he shouldn't be anywhere near this bubbling cup of divine wrath that is spoken of in such shocking terms in the Old and New Testament. Jesus shouldn't be anywhere near this cup unless he's the one pouring it out. And to imagine that this Jesus would be taking the cup to drink it himself is almost an absurdity to imagine even theologically. It's mind-boggling. It doesn't make sense, and it isn't right. You know, and in life, we, we kind of experience some of these examples where we see instances of injustice um, or some kind of unfairness that just does not sit quite well with us, right? If we think about, you know, somebody's committed just heinous crimes, and they're locked up and in prison, and they're paying for their deeds or whatever it might be, we say, okay, that makes sense. But then you hear these examples of people who are unjustly accused of crimes they never committed, and they're put in prison for the rest of their lives, and they're there for decades and 60-plus years, whatever it might be. And we hear stories of people, thankfully, finally being released after having done nothing wrong and placed in prison. We think our hearts ache, and we say, that shouldn't have happened. That's not right, what they experienced. Even when we think about things like health and sickness, you know, if we know somebody who's you know, like 80 years old, and they've been smoking for like 70 of those years or whatever, and they, you know, they get some kind of lung cancer, 
we think, man, that's tragic. It's horrible that that happens. But it kind of, you know, makes sense that that is the result. That's a consequence of something that they've done. But if you have somebody who's young and otherwise healthy and they suddenly just get some crazy cancer, we think, how is this possible? Um, a few years ago, this hasn't happened recently, but I don't know if it's happened to any of you guys. Um, I was just like, I think eating food one time, trying to watch this random YouTube video and just relaxing a bit. And I don't have ad blocker, I guess. A lot of people have ad block, but this ad came up and I had to watch like the first 15 seconds of it. And it was a St. Jude's ad. So suddenly I'm like probably ready to watch some random like comedy video or something. And then suddenly it's this mom talking about her little girl and they're showing her and just how she has this cancer and she's gone through chemotherapy. And suddenly I'm about to cry. And I'm like, man, I did not sign up for this. I thought I was just gonna watch this video and suddenly my heart's aching and they got me within seven seconds with this, you know, amazing ad. And it, you know, it is kind of funny that happened, but it's also just tragic. You know, like this is not something that should be happening. And that's something that we can kind of viscerally feel as people, right? And we see this in scripture when they say, God, how can the wicked prosper and the righteous, the honest, they're starving, they're dying, they're being persecuted, while the wicked, they're just, they're doing just fine. We might feel that even economically today as well. This just isn't right. It feels deeply wrong and unsettling. It grates against what we expect to be right. But how much more this spotless, righteous son of God in the garden, staring down at this cup of divine wrath, as God says to him, drink. How absurd would it be for Jesus, this beloved son, who for eternity lived in intimate communion with the Father and the Spirit in a relationship that he would now face God's curse, that he would now be forsaken by God the Father, that he who knew no sin would actually become sin and would be cut down by the sword of divine wrath. How absurd would that be? That the God who said to Abraham in Genesis 22, stop, put down the knife, don't do anything to Isaac, that this same God would provide a fitting sacrifice, a better sacrifice, by piercing his own son. Yet this is the exact absurdity, the thing that doesn't make sense, this terror that Jesus faced when he prayed in the garden, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. This was the terrifying reality that so troubled and distressed Jesus, and it was the temptation to avoid this path of suffering that was what drove Jesus to pray on his knees, sweating drops of blood in the garden. But the good news for us today is that where the disciples failed, where they fell asleep and their flesh was weakened and fell, succumbed to temptation, where the disciples failed, Jesus succeeded. The willing spirit of the disciples proclaimed that they would die before rejecting Jesus, was weakened by their flesh. But Jesus, he overcame the temptation of the enemy to avoid the cross and to save himself, to cut down all his enemies. Instead, he calmly set his face, leaving the garden. He set his face like stone to head to the cross, to be lifted up in humiliation, to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop, and why did Jesus do this? He did this for us. In Mark 10, 45, 
Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Mark 14 in the garden, when Jesus is wrestling in prayer, it's not an instance of divine child abuse. It's not Jesus being unwilling to save us and being forced to drink the cup by his Father. When Jesus says at the end of Mark 14, rise, let us be going, and he sets his face towards the cross, he's proving the exact opposite. He proves that his love for us is so vast, it's so deep, it's so wide, that he would do the absolutely unthinkable in order to save us. People who failed him, just like the disciples. In Mark 4, Jesus' words, they silence the raging storm, but in Mark 14, Jesus' actions silence our raging doubts. Teacher, God, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care about me and my family? Don't you care about the world? Are you even awake right now? Or is this house empty and silent? And Jesus' answer is in the garden, it's on the cross, and it is in the empty grave. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? These two passages, these two scenes in Mark, show us that the house is not empty. No matter how bad the storms of life get, how silent certain seasons might be, Jesus has proven once for all that his great love and care for us overcomes all of those things. So what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Um, I've probably already gone on for too long, and so I'm just going to close with a few thoughts for us to consider as we looked at these two, two scenes, as um, we've struggled with this question of, does God care? Whether you're feeling like in this season, you're wrestling with that question, or whether you feel like, you know, God is near, I feel good in my relationship with God. Regardless of where you might be, I think there's some helpful ways we can um, come away from these passages and be challenged. And the first thing is to recalibrate our fears, to recalibrate our fears. So what do I mean by that? When we look at these two scenes, the question we can ask is what scares us more, the storm in Mark 4 or the cup in Mark 14? You know, the disciples were terrified in Mark 4, but in Mark 14, they were asleep. Uh, this impending thing that Jesus was looking to didn't seem to really trouble them. And I don't say this to minimize the storms. I fully embrace how much suffering we can endure and how horrible that is, and that this is not something that God uh, diminishes or looks down upon. But I do think it's a challenging question to consider that if Jesus was severely troubled and distressed by something in Mark chapter 14, shouldn't we be as well? Shouldn't that be something that also troubles us? And I think too often, something like the cup of wrath or thinking about divine judgment um, is not something that maybe necessarily uh, troubles us. And I'm not saying that to say that we should just be trembling uh, because God is just going to smite us at any moment. But I say that to say, the more we understand the depth of what Jesus endured for us, the more we understand the greatness of his love for us. Recalibrating our fears so that we're in alignment with Jesus and what he is, he was troubled by, 
helps us to truly understand the radical love that he has for us, the lengths that he went to care for us and to love us. So recalibrating our fears, what really troubles us? The second thing, encouragement I think we have is to trust Jesus who is our anchor in the storm because the reality is that Jesus will not always calm every storm in our lives the way he did in Mark 4. I mean, that was amazing salvation and rescue that they experienced in that moment. But even those same disciples would one day face their own persecution, uh, would one day face their own deaths, even on crosses of their own. Jesus will not always calm every storm instantly in our lives, but the reality is that the love of Jesus that he showed in Mark 14 and on in the storms that we experience. So the encouragement is to use that as an anchor for our souls, to trust in him and to believe, even in these seasons when the storms are raging, that the house is not empty, that God is there and he does care for us. Third encouragement is to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think for many of us who feel like God has been absent for a long period of time, we feel jaded and cynical and uh, we don't really want to go to God anymore to pray and to continue bringing things before him. It seems like he's asleep, so what's the point? We might as well just walk away. Some of us might feel guilty too, like the disciples who failed. And so simultaneously, we feel angry at God for not doing anything. We also feel ashamed of ourselves because we have failed in our own relationships with God. But the encouragement here is not, uh, is to reject these lies of the enemy, seeking to drive this wedge between us and God, but cast your burdens on him, as it says in 1 Peter, because he cares for you. Persist in your cries because Jesus, the Lamb of God, really does care for you. And the last thing, we'll end with this, is to celebrate and to remember Jesus. Um, probably one of the hardest things, I think, to do when we're in seasons of struggling in our faith is to continue to praise and to continue to worship this Jesus who seems silent, who seems absent. Praise Jesus even when you don't feel it. Encourage the body around you with sensitivity and grace, with life-giving truth about who Jesus is, what he's done in Scripture, that anchor that we can hold on to. And part of this also is celebrating in community the Lord's Supper, as we'll do today. In Mark chapter 14, again, this is right before uh, what we read today. At that final supper, Jesus, as they were eating, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You know, Jesus, in Mark 14, he drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink a different cup, a cup of sweet life and blessing. Jesus' body was broken for us so that one day our own bodies would be restored by his broken body. And so today we remember that um, if we take the elements and we proclaim that as we eat and drink in remembrance of him. So take uh, and eat and drink.
God, we do thank you for today and we thank you for your word. God, I pray in this time as we reflect on your word today and on your actions, God, that we read about that speak louder even than the words of command in Mark 4, of your actions, of looking down the barrel of this cup of divine wrath that shouldn't have even been close to you, and yet you drank it for our sake to rescue us, the people who have so often failed you, deserted you, left you like Peter did. We thank you, God, that this is proof forever that the God who would not spare his own son but would give him up for us would also graciously give us all things. Lord, this is a glorious truth that so often we forget that we fail to believe in the storms of life. And we ask today that you would help us, Lord, to truly believe, regardless of how we might feel, regardless of the tragedies that we see around us, that somehow, in some way, Lord, you are the God of redemption, the God of resurrection, who brings life, who does care about us, who loves us. Help us cast our burdens and all of our anxieties upon you in this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.